and welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about The Discovery of Freedom by Rose Wilder Lane. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. This episode of the Great Books Podcast is brought to you by the Thinking Fellows Podcast, and I'll tell you more about that in just a few minutes. Our guest is Deidre Berzer, who teaches history at Hillsdale College. She's also the director and editor-in-chief of the South Dakota Historical Society Press, and she's podcasted with us many times on Willa Cather, Wilkie Collins, Louisa May Alcott, Peter Pan, plus Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder, who is the mother of the author we'll discuss in a moment. Deidre joins us in the studio as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station WRFH and Michigan. Deidre, welcome back to the Great Books Podcast. Thanks. I always love to be here. This is so great for me. Why is The Discovery of Freedom by Rose Wilder Lane a great book? It is a great book because it is really fundamentally historic in a lot of senses. It came out in 1943, At the same time, unplanned as a couple of other major books that all had kind of the same feeling coming out of the New Deal, which all three, they're all three by women who hated the New Deal, hated what FDR was doing to the country as they saw it, and um, takes a little while when when you have these reactions to kind of write them out. So, 1943 is when when Discovery of Freedom came out, and also Isabel Patterson's The God of the Machine and Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. And what Lane is trying to do is take this large scale, and I do mean large, look at world history and try to figure out what it is that made the United States of America this place of uh, grand innovation, wealth, prosperity, and freedom. What was the factor that made a difference. And I think for just trying to figure that out alone, it's really interesting to follow her train of thought through the book. I won't say it's an easy read, and it's certainly not one of these beautiful novels that's going to take your thoughts in upward, heavenly kind of beautiful ways, but, but it's a very substantial historical document and an interesting read. We're going to talk about all of that, what this book says, why it's important, the times in which it was written, and also the author, Rose Wilder Lane. And that's how I want to start, Deidre, is with Rose Wilder Lane, born 1886, died 1968. She is the daughter of a very famous American writer, Laura Ingalls Wilder, who is best known for Little House on the Prairie. So before we dive into what Rose Wilder Lane says in The Discovery of Freedom, just help us understand this connection, this amazing connection, this mother-daughter connection. Is there more to it than just biology? Uh, how do these how do these people fit together? That is such a great question. It's something that scholars of Wilders have been looking into for a long time. Um, So, to tell you how this question came about, there's a question about authorship with the Little House books. And it was known that Rose Wilder Lane had a lot to do with the editing of those books. So, you have to remember that Laura Ingalls Wilder was in her 60s in the 1930s when she started writing the Little House books. And Rose had been a well-known writer since the mid-1910s, somewhere around 1915. She'd gotten her start in writing as a newspaper reporter for the San Francisco 
newspaper that was part of the yellow journalism kind of Hearst network. And she learned how to write and she learned kind of that heavy hitting editorial style that newspapers were well known for at that time. But she also learned to kind of write with a lot of embellishment. So kind of a literary journalism style where she would invent dialogue, um, which sometimes got her in trouble. But Nonetheless, she had a really good sense of characterization and story, and so she was able to propel her writing career from San Francisco to Europe. Um, she and, and other American writers at the close of World War I uh, started working for the American Red Cross, reporting on what things were like in post-World War I Europe, and they were working with Herbert Hoover and trying to get American uh, attention really to the plight of so many refugees in Europe, and um, they were starving, these refugees, and so that's how Rose got to Europe, and from Europe she was able to write a lot. She had a great um, literary agent in New York who placed her pieces in all the um, magazines of the day, and magazine culture was very big in the 1920s and 1930s. Everybody subscribed to multiple magazines, and so she wrote stories for Saturday Evening Post and Country Gentleman, um, Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, Ladies Home Journal, all these big magazines, and it really kept her afloat while she was in Europe. And eventually, later in the 1920s, she comes back. She lived in, in um, Albania. She had lived in Paris. She'd visited Russia. She'd been all over the place. So she had all of these grand experiences. But she was the only child of Laura and Almanzo Wilder. And the call to come back to the farm, which at that point was in Missouri, not in South Dakota where she had been born, but in Missouri, um, and to take care of them as they got older was really strong. And she felt that she owed... You know, as a dutiful daughter, she owed them some time. So she went back to Missouri and she built a house with him. That's a whole other story. She's built an English style rock house. They had always lived in a farmhouse they built by hand with materials from their uh, Rocky Ridge farm. And so she would bring in all of her writer friends to kind of entertain her. And she had convinced her parents to invest all their money, as a lot of people did. And they lost it all in the crash of 1929. And so she wanted to find another source of income for her mother, who had actually been a writer. She had been a journalist for a newspaper called the Missouri Ruralist. And she had a column for about 15 years called As a Farm Wife Thinks. And uh, she, she had done a little bit of writing earlier kind of uh, prompted by Rose. She had submitted an article to Cosmopolitan called um, Whom Shall I Marry? So she was not a stranger to writing, but Rose kind of pushed her into writing her autobiography, which was called Pioneer Girl in 1930. And then Rose tried her best with literary agents all around New York City to get that thing published, but she was never successful. Um, but she did get some writer friends, publisher friends, interested in a little uh, short story that she pulled out of her mother's autobiography, um, which she called When Grandma Was a Little Girl. And um, Alfred Knopp picked that up, and then they axed their children's department, so it went over to Harper's, and that became Little House in the Big Woods. And then from there, it just exploded. But there's this controversy. How much of that was Rose, and how much was Laura? And Rose... You know, she edited very heavily what her mother's works, but it's still her mother's work. So a lot of scholars want to say it was a collaboration that brought out the best writing skills of both women. 
we'll return to the question of Little House on the Prairie in a few minutes. And I should say that uh, our show, Deidre, on Little House on the Prairie in this podcast series is number 40 for uh, listeners who want to check that out. If you're a member of NR+, Plus, National Review+, Plus, you can do that right now and listen to that show. But let's dive now into the discovery of freedom, written in 1943, as you say. So after they've written a bunch of the Little House on the Prairie books, Rose Wilder Lane, an accomplished writer already, uh, now they're authors or co-authors or whatever you want to call them of of these these now classic works. Tell us about Discovery of Freedom. The subtitle is Man's Struggle Against Authority. This is in some ways a, a, a polemic. Uh, I find the book uh, idiosyncratic, ambitious, um, arresting, charming, popular. It's written for a common mm-hmm. yes. reader, I think. But but what is what is the discovery of freedom? Man's struggle against authority. What's what's her fundamental point? So I think she was just looking around. She was so good at observing things and just trying to figure out what it was that made the difference for the United States of America. So she starts out, just calls this first chapter, actually it's kind of an introduction, The Situation. And it's it's kind of like this bird's eye view of humanity over all of written history. (laughs) Where did the energy, and that's what she focuses on energy, that humans have go? It's it's a peculiar chapter. It's, as you say, before chapter one. It's not even called the introduction. It's just called the situation. It's a kind of manifesto, I suppose. Right. And that word energy is used over and over again. She's talking about energy. What does she mean by energy? So she she starts kind of at the physics slash biology <laughs> with, okay, nothing happens unless someone does it, right? So if you want to turn the page of a book, you can think, okay, page, turn, but that's it's not going to happen. You have to will your fingers to turn that page of the book. So she takes that and extrapolates it much larger to talk about human will. Um, she keeps calling it energy, but you know what is this thing that keeps people going, and why now? Like, why in this short history of the United States of America had it proven itself to be so energetic, to have so much innovation and so many things changed? And, and think about her lifespan. She, with her parents, and she was six and seven, went from DeSmet, South Dakota, in a hack buggy pulled by horses. They moved to Mansfield, Missouri. Before long, there's a train, right? And she's then in Paris in the 1920s. She buys a Model T Ford and drives to Albania. There's hardly any roads. But she has seen all of this By the 1960s, Women's Day magazine is sending her on an airplane to Vietnam. We think think we've seen a lot of technological change in our own lives here in the 21st century, but my goodness, she saw maybe even more in her own time. And her mother certainly did as well, and and she grew up with those stories. So I think that's her mindset. Like, how do you explain that, and why here, and why now, and why hasn't... The uh, this kind of energy release been seen in world history before. And she says one of the traits of world history, you see it 
in all places at all times, or almost all places and almost at all times, squalor. Yes. That, that the human condition is, is, is nasty, brutish, and short, and then something happened. And she's also, from her experience in post-World War I Europe, she has seen hunger. She knows what it is. Um, and so, it, this is a refrain that shows up a lot, you know, is that people really have never had enough to eat. And so she kind of measures that against energy. Like, how, how do you put those two things together? You know, if you don't have enough to eat, you're not going to have a lot of energy. And so she's looking at, like, okay, what do people have to do to survive? And that's part of that opening salvo, um, the situation that most of human history has been just trying to survive the elements, right? She calls them these, these non-human forces that are, are basically out there to destroy humanity. And then there's the human forces that are out there to destroy the humanity. And so, once people can get through that, then maybe they might have some room for exercising their energy for innovation if they're not just exercising it to survive. The subtitle of the discovery of freedom is man's struggle against authority. Right. What's her problem with authority? Uh, so authority is what she thinks is the factor that keeps people from not having enough to eat. I mean, here's our question is if we can do, if we can create cars and airplanes and railroads, why can't people have enough to eat? There seems to be a disconnect there. And so she looks at what are the factors that have to be in place? And she says, there's this understanding people have had throughout history that they're not in control of themselves. Authority with a capital A, and that's how she writes it throughout the book, capital A authority, is what people think that the authority is in charge of them and so that they have to have permission or they have to obey. They don't have control over themselves. So it's the moment where people understand that they are created as an individual who has freedom and they are a person with dignity and integrity and that they were created that way, um, once people get that and then start pushing back against authority, then they can exercise their energy in a way that leads to all of these great innovations. And this is the discovery of freedom yes. from the title, that, that humankind must actually discover freedom before it can unleash these positive forces and, and escape from the squalor that is otherwise our, our lot. Yes. So she says there are two facts, right? The first fact that has to be recognized is that we are each an individual with liberty, right? Um, that has come not as granted by any government, but as part of our birthright. It's the way that God created us um, as an individual with dignity and freedom. And then the second fact she comes through or comes to um, through Christianity, and she adds on to that some, but that we're individuals, but we're part of a brotherhood. And that we have to, to work together and take care of each other, that we are responsible for each other. You're listening to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review, and our sponsor this week is The Thinking Fellows Podcast. 
And speaking of great books, this year is the 100th anniversary of the highly influential book by J. Gresham Mackin called Christianity and Liberalism. This important book explores the relationship and conflict between classical Christian thought and liberal ideology. This week, the Thinking Fellows podcast, part of the 1517 Podcast Network, discusses this classic work. As part of a two-part series, the Thinking Fellows will explore why Macon's work remains relevant 100 years later and how these ideas affect our lives today. The Thinking Fellows will bring their signature fun and conversational approach to essential ideas in philosophy, history, and Christian theology. Whether you're a student of theology, philosophy, or history, or simply someone who loves great literature, you won't want to miss these episodes of The Thinking Fellows Podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts for an engaging and enlightening discussion every week. Dieter, the discovery of freedom is often regarded as a modern American classic of classic liberalism, libertarianism, and so forth. Is that a good way to think about it? I think so. As I mentioned earlier, there are two other books that came out at the same time, and together the three women who wrote those books are considered the mothers of modern libertarianism. And those books are The God of the Machine by Isabel Patterson and The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. As you say, all of these books, all three of these books by women, published in 1943. Uh, tell us about how they come together. How are these books linked? So, the, those three writers were friends, kind of. Patterson and Lane had definitely been friends of a sort. There's actually quite a voluminous correspondence um, between Patterson and Lane. And people in the early part of the 20th century wrote letters unbelievable amounts of letters to each other and kept them all. Lane uh, would write with uh, carbon, right? So she had copies of them. So um, I think sometimes they were passed around as well. We know that that happens with a lot of literary figures throughout the 20th century, uh, or at least the first half of the 20th century too. So, so through those letters, we can trace what friendship more or less existed. Um, Lane only met Ayn Rand once and um, Isabel Patterson was kind of the, the link between them. So Rose Walter Lane was up with Ayn Rand through Isabel Patterson and, and vice versa. But Isabel Patterson was rather acerbic. I mean, she's brilliant, but rather acerbic. For many years, she uh, was the writer of a column called Turns with a Bookworm in a New York Herald newspaper. And uh, she could make or break a brand new book. <laughs> but she was really not an easy person to be around and not an easy person to be friends with. And so um, if she decided that there was something you did that made you kind of an idiot, then that was it. So she and Rand didn't think very highly of Discovery of Freedom. And Lane was hurt because they didn't push her book as she pushed theirs. But these three figures together are, in certain ways, the founding mothers of yes. the modern libertarian movement. William F. Buckley called them the Three Furies, which is quite <laughs> apt. <laughs> that, that, that name works on, on several levels. Many I levels. Suppose. <laughs> yes. so, so, so the discovery of freedom, then, by, by Rose Wilder Lane, this, this important part of, of, of their triumvirate in, in, 
1943. You, you mentioned that she talks about faith. And, yes. And sometimes libertarians get knocked for being um, uh, faithless or, or agnostic or, or whatever, but, but that, that would not describe the discovery of freedom. The, right. the faith, faith plays an important yes. part in Rose Wilder Lane's understanding of, of freedom. So two things I want to say about that. Um, Rose would not call herself a Christian, but she certainly believed in a God, a prime mover, and she'd been raised in the Methodist church that her parents attended in Mansfield, Missouri. Um, but she also understood, and uh, Patterson agreed with her on this, and this is where they differed from Rand, and they had a hard time with that, that Rand was a complete atheist, and she didn't understand the arguments that both Patterson and Lane made about uh, the moral compass that has to exist within freedom. And so, this this kind of became a, a problem for all of them. But the idea that Rose puts forth about her second fact, recognizing through Jesus Christ, um, the brotherhood of humankind, Patterson and Lane kind of thought was um, kind of pedantic and a little silly. And so, they pushed away from that, but within the context of of the discovery of freedom and how Lane develops that idea, I think it, it I, I think it has a lot of merit. So, uh, to back up just a little bit with with discovery of freedom, so we talked about the two main facts that she puts forth, which is one individual dignity with which the individual is born, and that liberty and freedom, and the second as the brotherhood of humankind. And she then looks at what she calls attempts, attempts to take that freedom and push back against capital A authority. So, the first attempt is Abraham, and who says no to the pagan gods and says, okay, right, I have I've been uh, created by God, I have this dignity, and that's the way I'm, I'm going to live and, and to raise my family. Okay, so then we have Moses, who does a very similar thing, pushes back against authority, sees the dignity of each individual, and acts on that. And then she goes to Jesus, and just the complete turnover in uh, understanding of the human being, and that inherent integrity that inherent God-given birthright of integrity. And that's what she calls the first, the first attempt. Yeah, the first attempt. Then that's right. briefly get us to the second attempt, because I want to get to the third attempt. Okay. What, what is the second attempt? The second attempt, she's really enamored with um, the Saracen civilization that's Muslim. And she looks at this, what she calls 900 years of learning, um, the release of energy, um, and it really um, propels... Spain, and then through Spain propels the rest of Europe into the Renaissance. And she puts that all at the feet of Muhammad, which is a really interesting argument. And this is one of the qualities of the book. It's, it's, it's idiosyncratic. Yes. That is so unexpected, this, this interpretation she gives in the second attempt. The first attempt feels kind of familiar. Mm -hmm. The third attempt also will feel kind of familiar. But the second attempt is... And peculiar. I, I'll say it's unexpected. And that, I think, comes from the time she spent in Albania which was part Catholic and part Muslim and, and really at war with one another. And she really found a lot to admire in that culture. Then we get to the third attempt, and it's familiar, but it's also really important in her understanding of freedom, and that's the American Revolution, yes. the birth of the United States. Why does she put that at the center of the discovery of freedom? 
So she sees the American Revolution as the moment when um, unknown people, and that's important to her, that it's, it's, it's regular people who stand up and say, no. So she talks about uh, the shot heard around the world fired at Lexington and some unknown farmer who knows who, who, who heard the British are coming and then he had to make a decision. Was he going to stand up and do what was right or was he just going to cower and wait for someone else to do it or give up liberty in the sense of wanting more security and maybe not losing his life? And then the things that were unleashed from that moment of Lexington and Concord, and she just runs with all of that, and just really interesting and beautiful take on the American Revolution. But she regards then the United States as, as the great realization of human freedom. This is the yes. place where it's happening right now. Yes. And she goes through uh, the Constitution pretty carefully. She really likes Madison. And kind of understanding that limitations placed on government had to be in place. And she talks about the different negotiations in coming up with the Constitution, especially that the Bill of Rights had to be there. And so this is kind of the, where the libertarian idea comes in, and she's building on classical liberalism, that government has to be limited and it has to have those checks and balances because anything that government does is based on violence. In her, her theory that she's creating here, right, it's all based on violence and force. And so if you're creating a government, but you want to make sure that human liberty is at its utmost that government has to uh, to be prohibited in a lot of ways. So she actually says the Bill of Rights should be called the Bill of Prohibitions because every single one of those uh, first 10 amendments are prohibitions on what the government can do with individuals. Now let's take this back to Little House on the Prairie. I think a lot of people come to Rose Wilderland because first they may have encountered Little House on the Prairie and they read about this authorship question and so forth. There's a way to read Little House on the Prairie, those books, through a kind of libertarian lens. Are the ideas in the Discovery Freedom alive in Little House on the Prairie, do you think? Can we see the connection between those classic works of, of children's literature and, and this manifesto from 1943? Definitely. We have to keep in mind that the Little House books and the fiction that Rose writes based on her family stories all predate Discovery of Freedom. So, I think that Rose is right, working out these ideas through her fiction. So, in addition to the Little House books in the 1930s, Rose publishes two novels. At first, they're in serialization, and then they're published as novels, and they both do really well. Um, the first was called Let the Hurricane Roar, and it was 1933, and it was then renamed Young Pioneers because Let the Hurricane Roar was a phrase from a hymn, and uh, people were kind of confused because it was on the prairies of South Dakota. But no hurricanes. <laughs> and, and then she wrote Freeland, um, which she really looks at homesteading. And uh, the pros and cons, we'll put it that way. So she's writing these novels based on her family stories while her mother's writing the Little House novels based on her family stories. And um, Rose actually 
upset her mother quite a bit because she borrowed an exact name. She wrote Charles and Caroline were the names of the protagonists in one of her novels, and that's the name of, of Laura's parents. And she was not happy <laughs> about what her daughter was doing. Um, so there's a lot of mother-daughter give and take. But nonetheless, yes, I think you can definitely see uh, uh, in these fictionalized accounts the same ideas at least percolating, that Rose comes to in the discovery of freedom. So Rose and her parents just hated the New Deal. And one of the reasons why was this loss of responsibility. And so she gets to that a lot in the discovery of freedom. But you see that in the novels. When people don't take responsibility for themselves and they give that up to the authority, they've lost their liberty. It's gone. There's one more figure I want to ask about connected to all of this, and that's Henry Grady Weaver. He wrote a book called The Mainspring of Human Progress in 1947, revised it in 1953. This book is important in connection to the legacy of the discovery of freedom. What is the connection between these two titles? So he takes the discovery of freedom with Rose Wilder Lane's permission and builds on it. And some of what he does is kind of uh, not to her liking, but she gives him permission to s sort of take that I the ideas that she's laid out in Discovery of Freedom and kind of run with them. And so that's what he does. And that becomes an important book in the history of libertarian thought, conservative thought. It's It popularizes yes. a lot of what she wrote in The Discovery of Freedom. And Perhaps the language is a little easier <laughs> to, to understand in the way that, that he puts it. Um, and that book is part of the Foundation of Economic Education fee as part of their library. So that disseminates those ideas even further. Now, Deidre, let's turn to your own story about Rose Wilder Lane and the discovery of freedom. How did you, as a reader and a scholar, discover this work and come to enjoy it so much. Much like you were mentioning a little bit ago, um, I found Rose through her mother. So I loved the Little House books. I started teaching a course uh, just on those books and then just doing some research and found Rose and then this whole wealth of things that she had written and dove right in. And what's the case for reading The Discovery of Freedom by Rose Wilder Lane now? And I'll just say, some of it feels dated, other parts of it feel really compelling and interesting, but what's the case for reading it now in the 2020s? I think when I reread it, I see a lot of um, things that are happening in our world today reflected in the pages, and some of the warnings that, that Rose puts forth about giving up personal responsibility and self-control, and she's really big on self-control, um, and that, that to her is akin to liberty, and so... This, uh, in the name of security or, or whatever it is, this willingness to let go of people's responsibility for themselves takes away from that energy, right? She goes back to that energy. So where does the energy for innovation come from if we no longer have this exercise of individual liberty? And it's a, it's a good question to ask. I mean, basically, she's looking at this 6,000 years of human history and saying, this is the decline of any civilization if you give up willingly your, the liberty that each individual has. 
Deidre Berzer, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about The Discovery of Freedom by Rose Wilder Lane. Absolutely. My pleasure. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at haymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at haymiller. And last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.